Hey everyone, welcome to Mastermind.fm. It's yet another episode. This is me, Jean Galea, and today I have a, a special guest, Danny Diaz, who's a paddle coach, and he's going to be talking more about this fantastic sport that I've been probably pestering everyone about this <laughs> this last year, since I've become really addicted to it. And we're going to also talk about like the business side of sport and paddle in particular. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Lanin. Thank you very much, Jan. What a pleasure. What a pleasure to be here. And hello, everybody who listens. Yeah, post. All right. So just to give a, a bit of a background about you, tell us about your past and how you got into paddle in the first place. Well, originally I was a tennis player. I used to play on the ATP tour. I got up to 500 on the ATP ranking. So I was living in Barcelona, but it wasn't good enough. So there was a time I decided to stop. I just basically ran out of money. And by the mm. time I stopped, I saw that uh, many of my friends, that they were younger tennis players, but they stopped at the age of 16, 17. When I moved back to my hometown, uh, all these guys, they were not playing tennis anymore. They were playing paddle. And even though in some places I saw the paddle courts, I never attempted playing. So, so they were all pushing me like, so now we play this. We don't play tennis anymore. You know, you should try it. And then I started trying it and I felt it was, it was an amazing sport, you know, and I felt I was quite good at it. I felt I could do the volleys, I could do the smashes, the typical thing of a tennis player mm -hmm. until I decided to play my first professional tournament <laughs> and I lost six love, six love in about 20 minutes to these two random people that I didn't even know. And I said, whoa, there's a lot behind this sport. I don't have a clue how to play this sport. And that's when I really got addicted to, to, to the sport, when I got absolutely killed on the court. And then I saw what a great game it was. And if we would just have to put some context in terms of the timeline, when did Padel start getting introduced to Spain in particular? Because that was the gateway to Europe, right? And what year are we talking about when you started playing? As you know, not sure if you know, Paddle was first started uh, the very basics in Mexico. Mm -hmm. But the way we know the sport, as in the way we know the court, that was in Marbella, where I actually live now. Nice. Okay. We actually have the first court here, how it was built. That's why I need to make a pilgrimage to Marbella. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some people from the jet set that they used to live here, Argentinians, English, and some Spanish, they mm -hmm. love the game. And some Argentinians uh, took the game to Argentina, and that's where it came really big, actually way bigger than Spain. In Spain, the growth was more organical. It was more like in private clubs, like it was played in small communities of wealthy people. Until uh, we have, I don't know whether if this has something to do or not, but our former president, Jose Maria Aznar, mm -hmm. came on TV a couple of times. This was back in 1997 or so playing paddle so everybody was like okay so what is this game you know it must be some kind of posh sport yeah. played by high communities you know upper class and since that happened all of a sudden the game started taking over this was year 2002 where the game started growing 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 until year 2005 the game in spain went absolutely mental and then since then we've had 13 years of constant growth where the game went from around 300,000 people playing in Spain up to almost, it's hard to know the figures because there are many players that don't have a license, but we estimate circa 4 to 4.5 million people playing in the country, mm -hmm. which is a hell of a lot. And the projection is that on 2020, we're going to be scratching 7 million people playing. 
So it's just ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, basically, it's just. But that's kind of uh, the, the timeline of the sport here in Spain. How it was introduced, how then it stayed like then a bit of an organic growth until year two thousand, approximately two thousand two thousand two. The game started becoming really popular, more affordable. The councils started introducing the sport in in communities. So then the game became a lot cheaper, and that's when it went absolutely crazy. Year two thousand and five was when the World Paddle Tour. Well, the Paddle Pro Tour at the time mm -hmm. became official. So for the first time, we had a professional circuit here in Spain, and that really helped the awareness of the sport. And well, and you know the rest. Now everybody plays paddle. Where no matter where you go, you see paddle courts everywhere. You know. And now for the last three, four years, we are we've seen a huge expansion of the sport worldwide, especially in Europe. But we can see that now it's just reaching every single country in the world. Right. So actually, it's the Fastest growing sports in Europe, I believe. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And the second most popular sport after football in Spain. Is that correct? Yes, totally correct. Totally correct. I mean, football is the first one, as in people playing. Mm -hmm. And the second one is paddle. It took over way, way, way tennis in many ways. So it's funny because many countries that think, you know, paddle is like, it's going to take over tennis. And then when I always talk to tennis players that are a little bit concerned about the impact of paddle, I say, well, look, in Spain, we have around 800,000 tennis players and we have 4.5 million players. That means that there's 3.7 million people that they have never picked a racket mm -hmm. or they've never played a racket sport. And they said, well, you know what? I like this game. So, so that's where the market is and that people that they don't have the skills to play tennis and they feel that it's quite easy to play, you know. And that's why it's becoming so popular, because it's, it's very engaging, easy to play, social, doubles. It, I think it's got all the ingredients to be, to be what it is, you know, the, the fastest growing sport in the world. Yeah. You already mentioned some things that make it so popular with especially beginners. What are the things that, in your opinion, are, make paddle so addictive? Well, the, the first thing is that it's not dominated by strength. Even though we, we see professional players playing absolutely amazing, mm -hmm. social players don't need strength. So because all the power, no matter how hard you hit it, the ball bounces back. So it's about knowing how to place the ball and knowing how to cover the core, you know, no matter. Of course, there is a technique, a lot of technique behind, but technique is not so important, for example, as tennis to start playing the sport. The second thing is that you start serving with an underarm serve. So basically the serve is not a big weapon, it's just only mm -hmm. to start playing the point. One of the big issues that tennis players have is that they don't know how to serve. So they could be training forever, but when they start playing a match, they fall out to pieces and they get nervous because they cannot actually start playing the point. It's doubles. Uh, the court is small. So even though the court is quite small, you feel that you can run a lot. But at the same time, you feel that maybe you don't have to run that much. Yeah. So it's not mandatory to run. You actually control the pace. And there is not much time wasting between point and point, you know. Now, it's funny, when I go to some tennis tournaments, everything feels very slow. It feels yeah. very slow, like there is a whole universe between point and point, you know, and, and it's, oh my God, when is this going to take, when, you know, I'm expecting something amazing. And it, so, so I think that is the perfect combination, you know. You can play outdoors, you can play indoors. You don't need a lot of a space to locate the course, you know. Uh, to build a court is actually affordable. So I think, I think it's got all those elements together, if you put them together. I will not be able to tell you many sports that have all those ingredients, you know. And overall, the, the fact that women play so often this sport, yeah. you think about football, yeah, I mean, even though there are women playing football, it's mostly men. Uh, basketball is the same. 
uh, tennis is it's kind of okay, but there is a, a dominancy. But with with paddle, I would say it's almost fifty fifty. I mean, I remember seeing at the beginning like uh, many clients that I had in tennis like dropping their kids to his wife, you know, say, I'm going to play tennis. And now it's the other way around. Now it's just <laughs> the wife saying, here you are, keep the kids, you know, I'm going to play paddle with my, with my friends, you know? So, so it's amazing that the whole family can actually go to the paddle club, you know, and yeah. the men play, the women play, the kids play, everybody plays, you know? I love the fact that you can also extend the longevity of a player's, uh, you know, in tennis, they peak very young. Totally. And then in Padel, we're seeing practically almost all the top 20 are over 30. Yeah, yeah, totally. Even even players, even players, I mean, last year, we had some players as well that are reaching the finals and winning tournaments. Willie Laoth, who is 44 yeah. years old, uh, winning one of the tournaments, you know. So that clearly tells you that if you know where to play the ball and where to locate on the court, you don't actually run that much. If you see, for example, a yeah. player like Cristian Gutierrez, now in these days, you look at him and you say, well, maybe he's not the fittest man on earth. He plays amazing, you know, and it's actually very annoying yeah. to play against him because he doesn't run, you're running like an idiot. And you think, what the hell is going on here, you know? So, so yeah, definitely the fitness factor, even though it can be at professional levels relevant, on social levels, I mean, we have many people from other countries that they come to learn the game. We say, Danny, you know, we want to learn the game. I always tell them, fantastic, play with these two 55-year-old men that they've been playing for 25 years paddle, you know? And they're all like a little bit chubby, you know? And they think, well, well Danny, come on, do we really have to play with these people? We're going to kill them. And then they lose 6-2-6-2, you know, and they haven't even moved. So they think, what the hell is going on here? So all of that together makes an incredible sport, without a doubt, Jan, without a doubt. I moved to Spain, like, uh, since January, full-time. I've been here in the past, but... This is the first like real long-term experience of living here. And I've been participating in many tournaments, paddle tournaments. And the social element is incredible. You know, like you mentioned, especially the paddle clubs, especially the new ones are purpose-built for paddle. So you'll have like 16 paddle courts, a swimming pool, yeah. a nice restaurant, like the green grass. And everybody's enjoying themselves in the outdoors, you know. Yeah. So it's fantastic as an atmosphere. Totally, totally. I mean, you go, as you say, it doesn't matter if it's a social tournament, a kids tournament, an adults tournament, a professional tournament, the atmosphere around. And, and, and of course, four people playing when there is a tournament means that there's almost like 10 people watching that game. Just only family or friends or whatever, yeah. you know. So if you multiply that by 16 cores, just one round of matches puts like 120 people together. So, mm -hmm. of course, uh, when you feel the energy, when you go on a paddle tournament, you walk around and you really feel the energy, you know, you think, well, you know, this is, this is cool. I want to, I want to get involved into this. So, so totally, you're totally right. I've also been playing some international tournaments. So I played in Lisbon and in Rotterdam so far. Yep. And it's the same thing even in other countries. So it's not something particular to Spain. Mm -hmm. They've been able to port even the social aspect to other countries. Yep. And speaking of other countries, which are the countries where Padel is really taking up in the fastest way? Well, I would probably say there's four countries that they are one step above the other ones, which are, the first one was uh, Portugal. Mm -hmm. It was probably the first country that took paddle serious and more developments were being built and professional players or club players decided to become professional and to attend the World Paddle Tour. Then we saw Italy as well, 
uh, taking over on the sport. I mean, the amount of clubs being built, it's insane. And then we have France and Sweden, particularly Sweden is just on a different level. I mean, we travel like twice a month to Sweden for courses and clinics. And every time we get there, there's a new club being open on a population of 10 million people. Mm -hmm. It's just unreal. They've gone crazy with the sport. So definitely Portugal, Italy, France, and Sweden. Those are the four countries that they have made a step forwards in terms of developments, in terms of participation, in terms of like taking part on tournaments, events. Those are the big countries. Then you have the other ones that is just going a little bit slower for some reasons, like from a business point of view, each market is totally different. But, but they will get there as well, you know? I mean, some countries will take longer, some other ones will take shorter, but eventually we see that it's just a progression. We haven't seen a country or a development that has gone backwards mm-hmm. that, that we haven't seen. And, and I think it's going to be a very, very long time. And if people do the right things, that should not happen. So, so happy days for new paddle projects. Yeah. Awesome. And in Sweden, is it a predominance of indoor courts? Yes, yes, totally. I mean, to as you know, it's, yeah. it's quite cold, <laughs> so you got to be quite brave. I mean, one of the trips we went to Lulio, which is almost by the North Pole, so when we were playing, it was minus 22, so imagine. But they also have outdoor courts that are very positive, you know, the, 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 their mentality is if there is one shiny day, trust me, we're going to be playing outdoors. <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's minus 50. In Sweden, it's, it's funny because they are building development, paddle developments from scratch. I mean, they do a paddle warehouse. Mm-hmm. Everything is totally designed to put the paddle cords on the warehouse, you know, whereas in other places you try to find an industrial unit or yeah. something like that. In Sweden, they are actually building proper paddle projects from scratch, which is amazing. I mean, they are investing a lot of money. And as a consequence, of course, they're, 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 reaching, they're reaching every single person in town. I mean, it's just seriously on a different level now. And also celebrities are joining now we have Zlatan Ibrahimovic, who is just oh. opening a chain of clubs. We have Jonas Bjorkman, mm-hmm. uh, who is opening all the chain of clubs. We're not even talking about single clubs. It's just change of clubs. So it's just, it's just a scary, actually. <laughs> I mean, in a good way. But it's like, oh, my God, these guys are going like 100% for it. So that, that proves how well accepted the sport is, you know, in these countries that there wasn't much to be done. It's like it's quite cold. Uh, I don't feel like doing anything. And it's also, as you say, the social element, I think, that plays a key role on these sort of countries that they struggle to get friends, to be social, you know, and all yeah. of a sudden you go on an indoor facility, you see everybody playing paddle, everybody talking, you know, and that, and that has a huge credit, you know, for the, for the development of the sport. Despite the fact of how cool the sport is, is yes, that it's a very big social tool for the people. And I think that these days and the way the, 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 the world we live in to become and to have social access to people and to interact with people is, is vital. It's vital. But that will be saving the world. <laughs> well, no, I, I mean, make I could it, tell you a, millions a, a of more stories. friendly place at least. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I could tell you a million of the stories from the club we had in London and actually people that they didn't have a boyfriend or a girlfriend yeah. and they actually got married because of paddle, you know? So for me, just to see that, I think that is the, the biggest thing that I can possibly see, you know, like to people get to know each other through paddle. That's the best. Excellent. So I want to talk about business as well and paddle, but before that, I want to make use of the fact that you're also a paddle trainer and an expert yes. in paddle. So I want to ask you some technical <laughs> questions as well. 
So like, of what, course. what are the most common mistakes and the beginner and intermediate levels, which is the majority of people are in these two kind of big buckets of players in terms of beginners and intermediate. The main two, well, I would say three, three errors. The first one is the overuse of the power. Mm -hmm. You go on a paddle court, you know, you see glass everywhere and you think, Jesus, I'm going to smack the hell out of it. You know, I'm going to try to kill my opponent. And then it takes you a while to realize that the more power you use, the more you're going to get killed. The second one is, is the use of the walls. You know, people actually struggle to use the walls. Mm -hmm. They totally forget that there is a wall behind them. And the more they use the wall, the more shot selection they have. When the ball is coming that fast to the player, there's not much you can do other than just blocking it back. Mm -hmm. But when you actually start thinking about the wall, especially this is a very common error in people that they've played a little bit of tennis, they, they, they forget about the wall, you know, and, and they are totally shocked about the amount of times you have to use the wall. And the third one is that very often you understand the game as an individual, and this is a game of two. You know, and they, I mean, you, the ball is coming to you, you play the point trying to win it, and then when the ball is going to your partner, you totally forget about the point, you know, and you go almost on eco mode, like without moving, just freezing there, you know, until the next ball is coming. So it's just important to understand that this is a game of two and there has to be a lot of communication, you know, in terms of positioning, in terms of talking. So I would say those are the main three errors, you know, the overuse of the power, the lack of use of the wall, and the, and the fact that it's a doubles game and you have to, it's, it's almost... What you feel, your partner has to feel the same. You know, what your partner feels, you have to know what he's feeling, what he's thinking. And that's, that's, that's something that people have to start working from the very beginning. You know, it's almost like a marriage, yeah. but without sex. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so yeah, that's how, that's how much you have to come penetrate with your partner, you know? Yeah, I've seen, obviously, all those three many times in this first year of my paddle experience so yeah yeah, yeah you know fix. what i'm talking yeah. about so. <laughs> what is good is that you mentioned that it's always played in, in couples which is also part of the social aspect we've been mentioning and i think yeah uh, i've seen this like paddle really brings out the character of one's person and the fact that Ooh, totally the fact that totally. you're playing with someone else and you have to adapt to so many different types of players some are aggressive some are a bit shy yeah. So I have to encourage them. So th there's this whole play of characters, uh, which is really interesting to me. And it also helped me, you know, better myself in a way. Totally, totally. Yeah. And the amount of things that you can see from a person on a paddle court, you know, depending on <laughs> what situation he's in, if he's the stronger player, if he's the weaker player, you know, I mean, the amount of reactions that you see from the person can tell you a lot about that person. So from a psychological point of view, I mean... I think it should be included also as a therapy, you know, just yeah. to see the profile <laughs> of the people, you know? So, yeah. Last question on the technical side. So I surprised people in the beginning of the year by saying that I'm more known as a technology entrepreneur working in the WordPress space. Yes. And on this podcast, I announced that this year I'm going to be shifting to, towards Paddle. Yes. Obviously, I'm starting from scratch. I'm not a pro player at all. <laughs> but I was trying to dedicate a lot of my time to improving, you know? Yeah. And I've been managing that quite successfully so far, although there's still a long way to go yeah. to become a good pilot player. So if you were to give me some advice on how I can improve in the best or fastest way possible, what should I be doing on a like day-to-day -day basis? <laughs> how would you plan my week if I were to tell you, listen, I have 
four or five hours a day. I can play paddle. The rest I'll be working. Yeah. Well, what should I be doing? Well, if you say, for example, you are visiting us for a week yeah. here where we, where we are in Marbella and you are going for a training session. Normally, the session should be around two hours paddle every day plus one hour fitness mm -hmm. because this sport, uh, from a physical point of view, it's not that you have to be so fast, but you have to be coordinated because the ball comes from everywhere with different spins and sometimes the reaction time is not that big. So fitness is one thing everybody needs to improve and everybody needs to be aware how much it makes you improve. Then the first hour of the paddle will definitely be a consistency of the shots like working around 40 minutes on the technique of your shots because yeah. obviously paddle is very tactical but if you don't have the skills and the control on the ball forget about tactics i mean if you have to play the ball close to the sidewall and there is no way on earth you can put the ball close to the sidewall i mean there is no way you can develop the tactics mm -hmm. so to work on the technique for about 40 45 minutes and the consistency of the shots and then the next is just tactics and strategy big time Big time. Knowing and being aware that according to where you play the ball, there has to be a reaction on the two players. You know, and the better you react, the more you're going to be in control. Then from talking like whether if it's worth working on the defense or on the attack, my advice always spend as much time as possible at the back of the court to understand the game the way it's played properly, like the way what's played back in the days. So that will allow you to select much better when to go to the net. Many people, they think and they are aware and they are right that when you're at the net, you are more in control and you will have more chances to create more aggression from mm -hmm. the net. But very often people just keep only this thing in mind and they forget about learning and enjoying the game from the back of the core. Because you can actually hurt a lot from the back of the core as a defender. You know, I mean, if you see some players like, for example, Sanju Gutierrez, uh, who is an incredible forehand player. Yeah. I've seen him matches where even he had the chance to go forwards, he lets the other players be in at the net and saying, okay, I haven't finished with you yet. And he keeps going lop down to his feet, lop down to his feet until the net player is about to suffer a heart attack. <laughs> so, so it's important that the players understand and they feel comfortable at the back of the court to then when they go to the net, uh, they feel much more relaxed about saying, well, you know what, if I cannot finish a point, I will not attempt finishing the point because I'm not scared of losing the net if I have to. Many players, they get very stressed that they, when they get to the net, they don't want to lose the net because they feel that it's going to be like, it's like three steps down, three steps backwards. And then they get stressed about finishing the point, trying to finish it when it's not the chance. And as you have probably felt, when you try to finish the point, when it's not the right chance, you will lose the point. Even you will make an enforced errors or your opponents will kill you on the way back. So to spend a good time from the back of the court and then just understanding that when you're at the net, it's a credit to be there, you know, enjoy being at the net. Do not rush, build it, you know. We always say that when you are at the net, you always have to think about a two-shot plan. So I put one ball here, so then I can open a space and put the ball there, you know. And then once that happens, exactly the same. Put one ball on one side, so then I can open a space and put the ball on the other side. And maybe that takes... 15 balls. The better the opponents are, the more shots you're going to need in order to create that situation where you say, now I've got an easy one, you know? And so, so that will be my advice for, for a week training, you know? Mm -hmm. Excellent. I've been on this last point. I've been finding it really hard to think ahead, you know? So I'm just focused on getting the ball to the other side, maybe placing it. Mm -hmm. 
but I, I'm not thinking like two, three balls ahead. And that's been really tough for me. Is it a question of just more experience and more technique or is there something one could do to get to that to that stage? Yeah, totally. I mean, it's just it's just making sure that you have the right feedback on in terms of where you play the ball, what your partner could do, and where do you have to be on court for the next shot. It's all about probabilities. This is this is Paddle is a game of percentages. If I put the ball here, what are the chances that my opponent plays that shot, this shot, or that shot? The reason why many players, like the way you say, are not able to think three, four shots ahead is just because they don't feel they restrict the player in such a way that they know what to expect from the player. Right. I'm sure that you've played with good players, and when you're at the net, you think, I don't have a clue if the next ball is going to be a lop or it's going to be a shot through the middle, or it's going to be a short angle, or it's going to be a down-the-line shot. So it's all about understanding that when you start playing in such a way, the player can only respond in certain ways. And when you start restricting your opponent, it becomes more predictable what he's going to do. And then in terms of that, you know where your next position needs to be. Where you know where you'll be to located on the core, you start thinking about your next shot. So as you play, you're thinking about your opponent's shot, where you have to be, where your next shot is going to be, and where the opponent is going to be on the next movement. So to be honest, it's just about understanding how you can restrict your opponent, you know? Uh, of course, it's easy to say. There is a lot of technique on the shots and a lot of tactical side and strategy, you know, and fitness elements. But that is clearly the way that players can start anticipating to know that according to every single shot you play, you might create some restrictions. Obviously, if you don't control the ball, your opponent will never have a restriction. So you're going to feel almost like a goalkeeper about to be on a penalty situation that you think, where the hell should I go? To the left, to the right, up, down, here? You know, so not the ideal situation, you know? So, yeah. But with time and with the good feedback, I hope you have a good coach beside you. <laughs> and you're going to be able to control that, yeah. Awesome advice. Um, so like we've seen like one week, how we do, you'd organize a clinic, which is like the ideal scenario. Yeah. And so what about the rest of the year? So just to give some context to our listeners, basically, if you're playing paddle, you have the opportunity to either play matches at your local gym or club. Yeah. You can do like one-to-one -one training. Then you have what's called in Spain as Clase Partido. Yes. The match lesson. Where you're playing. Yeah, three players and the coach, and he's stopping and fixing the errors as you go along. Yeah. Then you have physical training, and I think I mentioned. Oh, and the last one would be watching like World Puddle Tour matches or other live matches yeah. to learn from them. My problem is how to get the mix right between all those four or five things that I mentioned. You know, sometimes I feel like I'm playing too many matches, playing every day, but not improving sometimes like i'm watching matches but yeah i can't really they're almost too fast to understand what's happening this is this is a very common this is very interesting john and and for mm -hmm. also for the people listening because i'm sure there are lots of social players that they are yeah. picking up the sport i will tell you like the typical profile of a club player you know first time you see the game you think well i like this game right <laughs> so i'm going to get some lessons to see how this is. So say, for example, you take a pack of 10 lessons, 10 private lessons, or you join the club academy for like two, three months. Normally after those two, three months or 10 lessons, 
it gives you more or less uh, a little bit of knowledge about the game. And then you get excited and you think, well, you know what? I don't need coaching anymore. I can start playing matches, you know? I, I can make this game by myself, you know? I can put the ball in, I can go to the net, I can go to the back, and then I will learn the game, you know? And, and we say, fine, go for it, you know? I mean, it, that's great. So then people go from just only coaching to only playing matches, you know? And then it's fine, you enjoy it, you feel you improve, you win some matches, but then you get stuck in one level. Because like in any sport, when you want to improve, you need to understand that there is a technique behind, there is tactics behind, and there is a, there, there is a lot of concepts behind the sport. You know, when we talk to players, we, they, they always say, Danny, I would have never thought there was so much behind the paddle from a tactical and technical point of view. So then these guys, after three, four months of playing matches, they come back to us frustrated. And they think, Danny, I got stuck on my level. I'm not winning anymore. Look at this guy. He's playing way better than me. You know, I'm going to give up paddle. And I say, well, have you actually considered about coaching? Like not, not going crazy coaching, just having one or two sessions a week. And then you keep on playing your matches, you know? And then all of a sudden, it takes a while for them to get used to it. So normally when they take back the coaching, we have to actually step back two or three steps to undo the unforced uh, sorry, the bad habits that they have created yep. because mm -hmm. of not having that coaching structure. So actually they have to take two or three steps back. So the level of frustration is unreal because <laughs> they say, whoa, I've been losing all my matches and now I'm playing actually even worse. But then after a while, we see how the level goes up again straight away and those matches that they were playing and they were losing, now they're easily winning them, you know, and they go like... But it's, So what I mean with this is that I'm not saying that I'm not trying to sell <laughs> coaching programs but it's it's necessary if you are looking to improve uh, which is important to be said sometimes maybe you just want to be a social player and that's fine you know but if mm -hmm. you are looking to improve don't stop receiving coaching every now and then because you will need it and the better you play the more you're going to need it because the harder it's going to be to improve the better player you are the much harder it's going to be to improve so you're going to need help so my advice is combine the elements of coaching playing social matches and eventually play tournaments because playing tournaments as well is very important. You need to be under pressure. A social match is totally different from a tournament. Yep. You can play social matches and you can be the king of the club. And as soon as you go to play one tournament, you lose in the first round. That's why we have so much, as you have probably seen, we have so much conflict between divisions and categories here where <laughs> if one player is second, third yeah. and fourth, you know. So this actually profile, like intermediate player, He's always complaining at the club because he doesn't have strong matches, but then when he plays the tournament, he enters into two categories actually lower, you know? So it's like, it's like really? Are you serious? So, so that, that happens on 80% of the places in Spain, you know? And it's just because of that, because they live on one side, the coaching program, sorry. And so with you, if we have to say like 50% coaching, 50% playing, would that make sense or yeah for example if uh, how many hours will an intermediate player play a week normally i will say around six hours a week probably yeah. out of those six hours i will consider two hours coaching at least one basic but two ideal because once a week just one hour is not enough at least right. to be able to scratch two hours a week and then complement that with three decent matches and if possible once every two weeks to play a tournament so it's vital because, weekends, yeah. Yeah, because that gives you also, it gives you feedback in terms of your level, in terms of where you are, where you need to improve, 
you know. So it's not always your partner's fault. And uh, this is <laughs> this is a thing of paddle. Ah, it's my partner's fault. You know, you can always blame your partner. No, you have to be very honest with yourself and see where you are and say, I need to improve this. That I'm working fine. So then on the next week, you go back with your coach and say, Hey, coach, this I did really well. That I didn't know how to do. You know, so little by little, you start improving. You start improving, and then you have the social matches just to try these things. You know, to experiment. So because you are not going to make experiments when you're playing a tournament. I mean, the last thing you're going to do in a match when you're playing for a free bat, you know, is just to, to, <laughs> to make experiments. You say, just forget it, get the ball in and do what you can, you know. So, so that will be, that will be, do the coaching, do the social matches so you can experiment and then play the tournaments every now and then, every once, every two weeks. That will be ideal. Excellent. And what about watching matches? I found, for example, that I learn more watching the women's play because it's a bit a bit slower, totally. less fancy, and I can learn more than watching. Like the finals of the men's category are just too fast, too complicated for me to hope of doing that in my next match. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is this is another conflict that we also have, you know. We talk about people doing, for example, the bandeja to control the ball, mm -hmm. you know, and then they said, yeah, but I saw Paquito Navarro hitting the ball from like almost behind the service line. And I said, look, these are professionals, you know, <laughs> don't kill yourself. Yes, yes, you have to play paddle. You don't have to play professional paddle because in order to play professional, you have to train like 20 hours a week. You have to do the fitness. You have to play the tournaments for five or six years. And maybe after six years, we can talk, but people forget this. So as you say, I always give the advice that they have to look women paddle because it's more realistic because they don't have the possibility to hit the ball as hard as men. They have to think much wiser how to play the point, how to finish the point, you know. And sometimes for the girls, it's very difficult to finish the point. So you can clearly see the strategy, the tactics behind the game, how patient they are with the lob, how patient they are with the bandeja, according to the quality of that bandeja, how the players move to one side or to the other one, or closer or further, or they split or they cover the middle, you know. So that's, that's, that's actually something really, really spectacular to, to watch, you know. Yeah. Uh, men, it's obviously it's great fun to watch, just but only from the show point of view. Once you understand the game really well, you start understanding how men play as well. But with girls, definitely, it's going to be much easier for the players to understand the basics of the game and how to master your game into into a professional level. I mean, the girls these days they just playing absolutely amazing. If the girls yeah. had on top of what they do, if they had a strong smash, they will be way better players than men. But because they don't have the power of the smash, they have to think wisely how to choose the point carefully, you know, when to go for it, when not to go for it. So good advice. Watch the woman play because you learn a lot, a lot. Excellent. And I think we're spoiled really with all the live transmissions on YouTube and now on Gold, Gold TV. Yeah. So from this year, so all the matches can be watched live, not only from Spain, obviously, on YouTube, you can watch them from all around the world. So Yes, and you have also, you have some of the matches that we were commenting in English. Mm -hmm. uh, you have them available on YouTube because many people were complaining that sometimes yeah. they don't even know what they're talking. So two years ago, I was, I was one of the guys who was doing the, the broadcast of the World Paddle Tour with my colleague, with Mauri Andrini. And we were talking in tactics. We were basically using the broadcast to show the people how the game is played, you know? So if you have the chance, go on YouTube, type uh, World Paddle Tour in English, and you will be, have the chance to see many matches about tactics, you know, how, to, how the players develop the tactics, both men and women. 
you know, as you know, we also have our, our channel where we also give like free tutorials about tactics, how people, they say, Danny, how do I do, how do I defend the bandeja? Do I cover the middle? Do I cover the side? So there is a lot of information online, you know, for the people to, to see how this game is played. There is obviously not enough. I wish there was more, but personally, I am working on it with my company to try to provide as much information as possible in English on the internet. Yeah. Excellent. I was actually going to ask you about disparity between the material in Spanish and in English. So like I can understand Spanish and everything, but when I try to explain it to my friends back in Malta or abroad, it's hard to give them like go here and check this material, you know, and, and that's why I came across your website actually. Yeah, it's, it's I was looking for some material in English. There is a lack of there is a lack of information because the sport has been played in Latin countries for a very long time. So Spanish was the predominant language. And yes, now paddle is played all over the world, but it's still very small. And it was very recent. It was three, four years ago. So that was when, like two years ago, we said enough. I mean, the amount of people asking for information in English is unreal. That's why we, we launched our company and, and we decided to, to give the right information, tools, technique, tactics for coaches, players, for developers, for everybody, you know, but just so they can, they can actually understand the basis because it's a shame, you know, that sometimes the amount of messages I receive on the World Paddle Tour saying, Danny, I don't understand a thing, what they're talking about, you know, it doesn't help. It actually, the reality is that does not help the sport to go bigger than what it could be. But hopefully next year things will be a little bit different. I think that the World Paddle Tour will consider again broadcasting in English, which is a must. It's a huge step forward, you know, and it, it reaches the paddle community worldwide, you know. But, but yes, we're working hard on it, you know, with our free channel, with our on-demand channel, you know. And, but the information is just very, very small in English. I mean, I will say we are the, one of the very few, few people that provides information in English, if not probably the only ones from a professional point of view. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about the terminology of the shots themselves? Will they be called bandeja forever or well, will they be called tray? <laughs> <laughs> it's actually funny. It's actually where we travel a lot. We, tra we do clinics all over the world. Mm -hmm. And you see the terminology of bandeja uh, adapted to <laughs> the Swedish terminology. So you hear bandeja in English is bandeja. <laughs> Uh, it's like everybody tries to use that word and it's funny, you know, because I will expect people to, to try to find a word, you know, to say, mm -hmm. as you say in English, well, use a tray, you know, in Swedish, you, whatever it is. But actually people, that's, that's one word they use. For the other shots, for like the neat shots, the off-the-back wall shot, the back wall boast, people are more concerned about that, you know. But there's two words overall that people keep, which is bandeja and the other one chiquita. All of the people everywhere in the world, they use bandeja and chiquita, you know, so maybe they don't know a word about Spanish, but they know those two words. And I think they're going to remain like that for the history of paddle of coming years. So Awesome. All right. So let's, uh, let's switch to the business side now, because before the, we started the show, you were telling me that you actually started a paddle club in London. Yes. Yes. Which must have been uh, a very challenging endeavor. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I was, I was involved into sports management when I stopped playing tennis. Mm -hmm. I started my sports management career and I started running sports clubs. They had tennis, paddle, football, everything. And then we had the opportunity with another, some colleagues to, to launch an indoor paddle club in London. 
which will be the first indoor club in the UK. Right. So that was a very exciting and challenging project. When I looked at the numbers with my colleagues, we said, well, if Paddle is going the way it's going in Spain and there is a huge Spanish community in England, you know, why not trying to make it in London? And we managed to get a land. I have to say it has probably been the most incredible experience in every single way from a business point of view that I could possibly have because London is a very demanding city in every single way. It's incredibly expensive. So the communities are not that open. I mean, English sometimes they have their own sports like cricket, they have rugby, golf, tennis, you know, and sometimes they are not very receptive to new sports. So from every possible way, there was a lot of unprediction about how the market was going to respond, how the business was going to respond because, and we didn't have any sort of uh, backup on any other paddle project outside Spain. We were actually the first ones going for a proper business, paddle business industry in, in one country and, and in a city like London. So from the beginning, I have to say it was, it was we learned a lot. Uh, we messed it up big time on the first two years. I mean, our business projections diverted like 80% because <laughs> it was, we didn't know how the market was going to respond. Mm-hmm. But after two years, uh, we saw the level of engagement from locals, whether if they were English or uh, French or from any other country. And we saw a conversion. We started off with probably 90% of occupation with Spanish people. And towards year three, we had around 60% of non-Spanish occupation. So the Spanish occupation was only 40%. Mm-hmm. So that was clearly a mark for us that we said we are in the right business. Yeah. Unfortunately, a year ago, a bit less than a year ago, like half a year ago, we had to close the club. Not because the club wasn't working. The club, the numbers that it was doing, it was incredible. The turnout was incredible. But as we said, location, to find the right location is, is very expensive. So we were very lucky that we had a short lease in London, uh, but the renewal wasn't that long. So we had to renew every year. So we got short notice of a year that we had to leave the premises and it was impossible for us to find another venue. Of course, that I mean, there are venues, but they are so expensive that it compromises the whole business plan. So, of course, we could go into another place, but we should be charging £200 an hour for a core rental. So it's not realistic. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, we had to close it. So we had like 1,200, 1,300 members (laughs) thinking, okay, now what the hell are we supposed to do? You know, what are we going to play? And it's still, it's still an issue because in England particularly, the paddle reacted in many different ways. For example, in Sweden, the paddle started in very small villages, in very small cities like in the south, in Helsingborg, in Malmö. So it's not big towns. And then it went from the small cities to the big city. Yeah. In London, that didn't work. Many clubs started outside the big cities. But as we said, uh, the communities didn't accept the sport that, that well, you know. So I think it's just a sport that in England in particular, it has to go from the big cities into the smaller areas. But of course, it has a problem, the viability of the project, you know, that it's so expensive. The land is so expensive in London at the moment that it's actually not, not viable. It's just as simple as that. And the occupation scratches 100%. We had four courts. And after year three, we were having 70%, 75% of occupation. In Spain at the moment, the average is about 45 to 50%. So it was incredible. 
and it was making very good numbers. But unfortunately, the problem of the location was very, very challenging. Also, the major of sports in London didn't really support the sport. So we were looking for land concessions. Yeah. But of course, uh, the land is a premium and they were looking at paddle like this trend, new thing, you know. So they were telling me, Danny, if we have a cricket project, if we have a tennis project, if we have a rugby project and we have a paddle project, I don't have that much confidence that the paddle is going to challenge as hard as the rugby, tennis or... And we said, fair enough, but, but this is the future, you know. And the reality is that many of the tennis clubs, their numbers of participation are going down. So instead of seeing that like an opportunity... They were saying that, like, uh, well, you know, maybe I lose even more tennis players. And I said, but it's not the problem. The thing is that you want to retain your customer. It doesn't matter if he plays tennis, he plays paddle, or he plays temping bowling, you know, but you have to retain your customer. And paddle offers a new dimension of the sport to many people that they've never approached this club. So they're still fighting with that. But from the business point of view, it was incredible because we had two years where we had to fight for every single customer to introduce the sport to a community that didn't have a clue about paddle. I remember, I remember going to in the middle of London and talking, hey, we have this new sport called paddle, you know? And I said, paddle, paddle surf, you mean? This thing that you go on, on the surfboard and you're just paddling? And I said, no, 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 this is paddle. It's similar, it's a combination of tennis and squash. And we actually did some marketing events in Canary Wharf in one of the biggest finance districts in London. And people were watching the game on the screens. We actually built like a mini paddle court inside the shopping mall. Mm-hmm. And the people were, were like, well, my God, where can I play this? You know, so, and it's funny because whoever was trying the sport for the first time, they were coming back again. So I didn't meet one single person that said, mm, you know what? I don't like this game. You know, I'm going to give up. Every single person was addicted to it. So, and this is the reason why we see the growth all over Europe. The, the thing, of course, is that, Top countries like London, like Tokyo, like New York, it's difficult. I mean, there are people trying to develop the sport in New York. I've been in contact with many people there, but the problem is the land that is so expensive that it's just not, yeah. it's not viable, you know, but it will happen. It's just a question of time. So let's say I'm from Malta, right? It's, a, it's an island uh, just south of Sicily. And so there's no paddle there at all. But people have been hearing about paddle from me, of course. I've been posting all the time. Yeah. So what would be your advice if I had to open something there? Like what would a paddle court cost, for example? And what would be the first steps one would have to do to start paddle in a new country? Well, the first thing, of course, you have to look at the numbers. I mean, first of all, you have to make sure that you calculate every single cost that you're going to have. Uh, because when you start on a new country, it's not so much about whether if the sport is going to work or not, because it will work. Mm-hmm. It's just how long it's going to take for the sport to take over. And you have to make sure that whatever time it takes, you're going to have enough cash flows to support and to maintain the business open on a daily basis. So you have to calculate really well the costs and you have to invest a lot and you, you have to calculate a lot, a big of the budget that you're going to have is on marketing. Because in the end, it's just introducing the sport to people. So there are some options over there. Uh, you either have a good visibility on the facilities that you have, that you make sure that there is a high traffic of people. For example, at joining a tennis club, at joining a sports club, where you know you have a good mass of people coming around and they can actually see the course and say, what's that? I want to have a game. I want to try that, you know, mm-hmm. because once they try it, they love it. 
So make sure you are visible. That's the first thing. We had a huge handicap that we were inside a warehouse uh, where nobody could see the, the, the facility. So we were struggling in the beginning. That was the, that was the major problem that we had. But we were located inside a sports arena. There was indoor football, there was indoor cricket, and that gave us a good traffic of people that they were coming to our, our premises. The second one is, as we said, just to make sure you have good relations in every single possible business that you know run. We were in contact with the Spanish Chamber of Commerce uh, that provided us uh, contacts with the Argentinian Chamber of Commerce, with the Mexican Chamber of Commerce, with the Brazilian Chamber of Commerce. So those sort of businesses that can have clients that already have some sort of idea about the sport. Mm -hmm. And the third one is just to make sure you are willing to stay on the court and live on the court for the next two years. You know, at the beginning, whoever has to be working on the premises needs to have clear that he's going to be living 24-7 on the courts. Because at the beginning, there's going to be a lot of free tasters. There's going to be a lot of free sessions, corporate events, network events to invite to people, inviting to schools to know the game, to know the sport. And once they've tried it, all these sort of businesses, all these sort of schools, they have budget for the kids or for the employees in well-being to go there and just to, to play some sort of sport. But it's vital that the marketing budget that you have forecasted for the business is way bigger than what you think because you will need it. You will need it big time. I mean, it's all about the promotion of the sport. On the other hand, the good thing is that the paddle has the magic that when somebody tries, yeah. you feel totally engaged to it, you know? So... So it's not so much about how amazing the club looks. It's not so much about whether if you have the best professional coaches or not. It's just to make sure that you have something affordable, something viable, and good PRs, good public relationships working with paddle knowledge, of course. But when you are launching the sport on a new market, you don't need to have the best professional players because the people don't know the sport yet. Yeah. This is one thing you can introduce little by little, you know. It's like, for example, these new countries that they want to do an exhibition with the top four in the world. And I say, you don't need them. You can bring the number 150 and 160 in the world and people are going to be as amazed as with the first four because they don't still know what good paddle is. So don't burn that road when you can use it three years ahead, you know. So the same with good coaches. You can have good coaches. You need you need coaches to introduce the sport, of course, that they can set a basic academy, but they can also form themselves as coaches as the sport grows and as the business grows, you know. So my advice is don't go crazy with costs and needed costs. Don't go for the most spectacular paddle courts, you know. I mean, a paddle court, you say, yeah, but on these courts, the people can run out of the course. And I say, in Malta, how many people are going to run out of the court to hit the ball out of the court? It's going to take probably five years. So you don't need such good courts for that, you know. I mean, you can get relatively cheap courts these days for 20,000, 15 to 20,000 euros. Uh, you can get good people, you know, like good PRs that are introducing the game. And you just have to forecast a good marketing budget because you're going to need it. And you have to, I would say, comparing it to the London case, you're going to need a good two years until maybe you can scratch the break-even. Some places like Sweden. It has been after month six because the sport has been accepted incredibly well, you know. So now they know that in Sweden it works. 
But when you approach a new country that there is no pilot background whatsoever, it's very uncertain how the market is going to respond. And you have to be ready for that sanity of saying maybe the people get the game after two years, you know, maybe maybe my volume of customers, I will be there by year two. But then what's going to happen before those two years? Can I support, can I stay there losing a little bit of money on that time? So it's, it's important, you know, it's, it's a very incredible sport, but you have to have your feet on the ground when opening a paddle business, right. big time. And uh, like when their infrastructure is in place, obviously there is scope for more add-on activities, as we mentioned, tournaments, yeah. uh, courses, coaching, a lot of stuff that you do, you know, and products that's on online courses, blogging about paddle shops, all this other stuff. Which of them in particular do you see as being very good business cases apart from opening a club? When you think about a paddle club, the biggest success, as we said, of this sport is the social side of the sport. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is what really engages the people. The fact that they can play, that they meet three more guys, that they meet 30 people when you organize a mixing, you know, and that creates like a community, like a paddle community. And this paddle community will have needs. They need a place where to have a drink. The bar normally in every single sports club works amazingly well. It's a must that the clubs have a social area where people can stay there having a drink or having a snack. It doesn't have to be something amazing. I mean, the club where we had in London, we had just beer, hot dogs and pizzas. <laughs> and, and that was they could stay there forever. They could stay there for six hours. And I think, but this place looks quite actually basic. I mean, and I said, but I can stay here, you know, talking to my colleagues, talking to my friends and having another beer and watching some games. So the bar is a must. The amount of social events that you have to organize is also a must because people in the end, they're looking to play matches. They are looking to feel some sort of competition. Maybe at the beginning, people are not into competitions like the way we know the competitions, but they are willing to play mix-ins, social matches, pools, and there needs to be somebody organizing all this behind the scenes. Some countries, northern countries, maybe because of the way they are, They arrange the matches by themselves, which is fantastic. But southern countries, everybody is asking for a match to be arranged, you know. And it's important that there is somebody giving this sort of service, you know, because the first thing that would say, okay, but I need three more people to play with. Would I don't know three people? They say, don't worry, I will organize these these three guys for you. So the amount of social events that there have to be, it's incredible, obviously. Uh, when you are trying to introduce the sport in a new place, there will be no sort of material equipment available in the shops. So you're going to have to do uh, some investment to provide this sort of equipment, paddle bats, shoes, shirts, balls, whatever, you know. And then you will realize that it's actually, that it's actually a good business line, you know, a good side business that you can have. Especially now, there are many brands that they are crazy to go uh, worldwide, you know, to expand their markets. So the amount of offers that you can get is just unreal. I mean, you can get lots of bats for relatively good deals, you know, so you can you can have better cash flows, you know, with, with the shops. Also the sponsors. Sponsors are a huge bonus in the sport because of the same thing. Maybe you go to Malta, as you said, but nobody knows the sport and they say, well, you know what? I'm not willing to advertise my brand in this yet. But there are many companies from the paddle business, beer companies, paddle companies, core installation companies, that they are willing to promote their services. So sponsoring is a must. 
wherever club you go, you will see that there is advertising spaces available and all of them almost are taken. I mean, here where I live, all the courts have a sponsor on the court. They have an event and organized uh, monthly, on a monthly basis. So those three for me are a must. Whether if you can have side businesses, like for example, now we've introduced as well uh, the babysitting for the, for the people, for a lot of customers that they come and play in the mornings, you know, and they say, well, yeah. I cannot leave the baby anywhere, you know, we have the babysitter. It's not that the babysitting itself, it's going to be a huge business, but it attracts a lot more of people that they don't know what to do in the mornings. Maybe they don't work or they have flexible hours, you know, and they can actually drop the baby there, you know. So it's a huge bonus for the, for the, for the place. Those, I would say, I will be the, the main side businesses that a paddle club will definitely need. Then you can have a gym, of course, uh, which helps. But what I've seen with time is that uh, the gym has its own market and the paddle has its own market. You know, where, where we work, we have a gym as well, but people don't interact. And, and this I've seen in many different places, you know. We've been researching and we found out uh, we were also working sometimes at David Lloyd, which is a huge change in the UK. And the gym is a gym and the paddle is a paddle, you know. They don't connect both things. So if you have them, brilliant. But I would say the ones that are going to work the most is just the paddle, the shop and the bar. These three, without a doubt, you have to have them. If you have that, you have the perfect combination to keep the customer entertained for the whole day. Excellent advice. And so I've, I've met a lot of people, friends of mine who heard about Paddle from me. They've seen and understood how big it's becoming yes and would like to invest but they don't play they don't really have the time to learn about it they just want to put put in some money and invest in it as a business yes what would be your advice on how to find partners in this case first of all my advice is to get advice this is i mean it sounds a bit funny but uh, <laughs> my advice is to get advice yes because why do i say this because one of the biggest problems uh, that we've seen in Spain, especially after the recession we had in 2006, is that there were a lot of people into construction, into car dealers, uh, that they had the money, but they were scared to keep on investing in that. And maybe there were paddle players and they saw the opportunity and they thought, well, if I invest 20,000 euros on a court and I charge 20 euros per hour and there are 10 hours available, so I make 200 euros a day times 30, that means I'm going to make uh, 6,000 euros per court. Jesus Christ, this is going to be the business of my life. And if I open 10 courts, it's going to be 60,000 euros. I'm going to be the richest man on earth. That doesn't work like that. I mean, a it, it's a business and you have to get advice. And because of this, we see even though the sport is growing like no other in Spain and the participation is going up, we see many clubs that they are closing. And they are closing because they didn't forecast all these things. They didn't think about what was their target market. They didn't think about the competition. And maybe we see many places that they have, like, I don't know, 10 clubs within a five kilometer radio, which is totally unreal. And basically, these people that they were thinking about investing money, when they face the problems, rather than increasing the quality of their services, the way they were fighting back other clubs was by dropping the prices, which is the beginning of the chaos because it doesn't matter if you have 100% of occupation if you are not making enough money to make it viable there will be a moment that you will collapse the market so then of course that creates a huge conflict that all the clubs feel that they're forced to drop the prices 
So rather than fighting for the quality of the services, many clubs are fighting for the, the, the how cheap you can play for, you know, and this is very dangerous. So my first thing is, is to make sure you get professional advice, that you make a proper business plan. If you don't have a business plan, you have many chances to be unsuccessful on your business or maybe not as profitable or maybe not forecasting problems that you might face in the future. You know, and this is one of the things we're really working with the guys, with our colleagues in Sweden. And I say, look, guys, I mean, this is, this is like the gold fever, you know, like in the United States back in the days. But you have mm -hmm. to be very careful, you know, and you have to respect a minimum distance. That's why also the federations, they are trying to catch up as well. You know, I mean, we could be talking here for ages, you know, because <laughs> if the federation does not regulate all these things, this is like the wild, wild west. You know, you have a free space, you open the courts, you know, and maybe the... In three years' time, you have another club open. And then in two years' time, you have another club open. And then in six years' time, you have a public facility open where people can play for almost a 10% of what they're paying on your club. So then it's the beginning of the end. You know? So my advice is to get proper advice in terms of the target market, whether if the people know the sport, also whether if it's like how much they can spend a month, you know, how much every person is willing to expect in, in willing to invest into sport. And that will be my first thing. Once I have this and I see that it's a viable situation to open a club, to get people whose value is not only the money. Uh, many people, they just say, okay, I need shareholders, you know, I mean, come on, uh, this project is 200,000, I've got 50,000, yeah. I need three more partners, you know, four more partners. Make sure that these guys can also provide some sort of uh, active help on the business, you know, on one side, because they're going to care more about the sport and another side, because you're going to save a lot of money by hiring people that will after cause you a lot of money, you know, so make sure that whoever you partner, uh, you know, that they are good on their background, on their fields, you know, don't open these things just with friends because you will lose your friends for the rest <laughs> of your life. It's a question of time. You know, if you're very lucky, maybe it's not the case, but I've seen many, many cases where friends have opened this. It doesn't work, they panic, they start blaming each other, they don't know what to do, they don't have a business plan, and then it collapses, you know, and then they close the club. And the problem is not that they close the club, the problem is how much harm they've done to the sport and how much they've hurt to other clubs because of panicking, you know. So this is one thing that I'm very concerned for the future of the sport because in Argentina that happened and the market just went down. In Spain, it's happened and it is still happening and it will happen if there are no regulations. So this is like, yeah, as you said, it feels like the golden fever, you know, and it's not. And new places and new countries need to be aware of these things. Otherwise, we're going to see the same situation, the same scenario in other countries. I really believe, unfortunately, that we're going to see this in other places. And I think there has to be somebody from the top controlling and organizing, you know, because there is people for everybody and there is market for everybody. I mean, of course, there is market for everybody, but you cannot collapse one side of the market, you know, because then it creates a bad reputation from a business point of view. For the, for the person who play the sport, it's fantastic. But in the end, he will be affected as well because maybe he's going to have facilities being closed and he thinks, okay, now I have to travel even further, you know. So, so there needs to be a good discipline about the work, about the business, you know, and and you need to have professionals. And the problem, for example, here in Spain, I speak from the, from the experience that there are many people that they are not professionals. And they've opened many clubs and very few have succeeded, unfortunately. 
but it proves that this is a professional business and you need professionals beside you, without a doubt, without a doubt, Jan. Yeah, I think that's, like you said, first step is to take advice. And I think that's excellent advice to start off with for everyone who's been thinking about investing in the sport. So yeah. thank you very much for that. My pleasure. I want to close off the episode just by really focusing on what you do at Paddle Trainer and your club in Marbella, because I think you're doing some excellent stuff, especially as you said, you're possibly the only one who's doing stuff in English. And I think that's a very good thing for the rest of Europe, having a good resource from which to learn and have this opportunity to attend clinics coaching. So just tell us about all the things you're doing in uh, Adel Trainer. Well, I mean, we basically provide through our website, through our company, Paddle Trainer, paddletrainer.com. Mm -hmm. uh, we provide help to anyone in the world of paddle. So no matter what you need, you can contact us and we'll do it for you. Uh, our core business is the coaching. Uh, we provide coaching courses all over Europe, all over the world. We travel to Central America as well. And we also receive people or on, on our headquarters here in Marbella. For, yes, to train players, to train coaches. We also do a lot of coaching courses because people, they play, they love the game, but they don't know how to, to introduce the sport to other players. So we also do coaching courses. Can I stop you just on this point? So let's say I want to become a coach and open a club in Malta. Yep. Um, what level do I have to have before attending such a course? Well, first of all, you have one level, which is you don't need a proper level. I mean, just social players can have like the basic level mm -hmm. to be an instructor. I mean, to be like um, the second person of a coach, you know, so it can be appointed as an assistant on a club. Yeah. For that, you don't need like as long as you know the fundamentals of the game, it's fine. There are tests that you need to achieve as a player, but there are basic tests like how to hit a forehand, flat forehand, slice forehand, flat backhand, slice backhand, uh, to use the single walls, even the back wall or the side wall, the volley, the smash, and to know the rules of the game and coaching rules. That will be the level one, uh, which almost every person who plays, who has been playing for a year and a half at least of Pavel, can more or less make it. Then you have level two, where you have to be a good player. You have to have had results as player, like to play at least in second category, first category or world paddle tour, and to have also coaching skills. So you are being asked, this is a funny one, you know, because people think that this is great, you know, and when we take people on a very simple test, which is the ball feeding, to fit the ball on a paddle court is actually one of the hardest things you can possibly feel. The amount of tennis players that we've seen struggling, just feeding the ball into the two walls on the corner, it's unreal. And they get so shaky, it's just, it's just super funny, you know. So, so they have to have the skills to be able to, to transmit the knowledge, but also to prove it as a player and to make sure that the player can achieve these things. I mean, we've seen many times people that they just want to work, for example, the two wall shots and the coach is not able to fit the ball into the two walls with a turn. So, the, of course, the customer thinks, well, man, I'm, I'm paying you 50 euros for a lesson and I haven't received the ball three times in a row in the same way. So, so they need to have that. Then the level three, it will be more of the same, but we'll also introduce the club management, how to be a manager on the club and how to know how to run an academy program, how to have the daily needs of a club. And then the level four will be from a business point of view, like how to open a club, how to start from scratch and how to develop the whole project. These are the four levels that we have. 
it's private, so it's it's like any other private company that they're in Spain. We are a private company. Uh, we are approved by the LTA, by the British Paddle Association and by the Swedish Paddle Association, but we are not approved here in Spain or in other countries. But there are many companies that that. Unfortunately, the federation needs to step up as well on that on that field because there are that's why there are many private companies going forwards because the level of the coaching courses here in Spain, unfortunately, sometimes is not as strong as it should be. And as a proof, we see many, many coaches that are not that good. So we cover that help on our business as well. And then we provide business management advice. So for all that people that maybe they have a club or is not working that well, and they don't know how to make it go up, how to make their numbers go up, we provide that help for investors, as you said, who are willing to invest, but they don't know where to start from. We make turnkey projects. So we analyze absolutely everything, make the business plans, the marketing plan, the financial costs, financial projections, absolutely everything. Uh, we also build rackets for companies. So uh, we have our own brand, which is Mac, uh, but we also build for bats for other people. So they just want to have their own brand. We will do that. We also do clothing. So we provide help on clothing. So basically we cover any single need that the foreign market needs. We are not targeted to the Spanish market. There is enough done here in Spain. We just want to target the, the non-Spanish spoken market. And of course, we travel everywhere just doing these clinics. I mean, wherever, whoever calls us, hey, Danny, we have a group of 20 people. We just want to do a coaching course, you know, because we need coaches or we have 20 players and they want to play better paddle, you know, what can we do? So that we'd organize. And we also do players management, professional players management. We have some players on the World Paddle Tour ranked 85, 1995 that we manage them. So basically we do everything, you know, I mean, it's just, it's such an exciting business and we've been in the business for so long that we don't want to stop at one point. We just want to keep growing and growing. And the reality is that there is, there is a huge opportunity now, you know, in, in, in new countries. So we want to make sure we have every single demand covered. We also have our online course, as we said. You can go on YouTube, you can go on our website, and then we also have on Vimeo mm -hmm. our private channel. So you pay a subscription of 49 euros a year, and you have like uh, 70 tutorials about how to play the sport, how to teach the sport, tactics, drills that you can do for your players, you as a coach, you as a player, fitness. And now we're going to start with the management as well. We're going to do a course for management, for paddle management. So. So this is a non-stop. We, we keep ourselves quite busy. Trust me. <laughs> I think I'm going to have you come back on the show and just talk about time management. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever you want. Whenever you want. Because it's amazing that you manage to do all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what about these uh, paddle clinics that you have? Because you have one this weekend, right? Yes, we have uh, one this weekend uh -huh. that we invite people from everywhere to, to be here for like three days. Mm -hmm. teaching just just getting the basics we're teaching them the yeah. basics of the sport and we also have different coaches you know so we can adapt at the level according to the players and we also have the swedish national team yeah coming to visit us for this weekend because uh, we're also i am the national captain of the swedish team oh, nice. so yeah as if I had nothing to do, there you go. Even more things, you know. <laughs> so it's gonna be it's gonna be an interesting weekend, you know. And basically, they come for like a three day weekend course. And we take care of everything. All they have to do is just to jump on the plane. We pick them up from the airport, and we take care of the accommodation, 
the full board, the coaching, and also just to visit Marbella because we're lucky that yeah. we live in a lovely place. So that we just do a little bit of tourism. So we take them to like the best places in Marbella. So it's almost a little bit of an experience of paddle, but also just to visit the, the Costa del Sol. So we are lucky we live there, here, you know, we, we just have to, we have to take the chance of that. And it's open to players of any level? Any level, any level. From beginners, I mean, for this particular course, we are demanding a minimum level of play, you know, because it's important that the level, yeah. it's more or less connected, yeah. you know, with all the players, because if not, you feel that maybe you're either working too hard or you are not working enough. So for this particular course, we are inviting people with a minimum of skills. So whoever contacted us, we are always asking to see what type of player he is, yeah. if they can send us a video, if we don't know them, you know, uh, so then we can, we can track the player because we want to keep the standard as similar as possible in a group. But we also have um, courses for beginners, that people that they've maybe played for two months and they absolutely panic about playing one match. So they just want to keep training and they want to keep a little bit more of a social side of the sport, you know, to introduce in a smooth way to the sport. We also have professional courses, so we've got everything. You just have to keep track of our calendar and, and, and our website, and there you can see all the clinics that we arrange, and that's being held in Marbella. Of course, when we travel everywhere, it depends on the it depends on the needs of the customer. We do we cover every single need. Well, excellent. I I really enjoyed this this interview, and uh, I think I've learned a lot personally. But I'm sure people who were new to paddle will have learned even more. So it's it's really amazing to have you. And also, like I said, somebody who speaks English, you know, because it's yes usually hard to translate all the Spanish, you know, and I've been blogging about Paddle myself on my blog because I just love it. Yeah. But it's, it's good to have some expert providers with all these insights that I wouldn't know about, of course, because I'm still new to the sport. Excellent. So thanks again for, for being with us. Yeah, my pleasure. Whenever you want. Before we close off, just uh, tell our audience where they can find you and your resources. I know I have paddletrainer.com. And if they want to contact you, yes, uh, yeah. Any... Simple. I mean, as you said, our website is paddletrainer.com. You can find us on, on email as well at contact at paddletrainer.com. And of course, there you can visit us in our, our headquarters here in Marbella at the Real Club Paddle Marbella. So we have a 10 core facility with gym, with restaurant. We have a hotel just beside the club. So it's a perfect place for people to come and, and, and enjoy the paddle experience, you know. And through our website, mainly, you can find all the services that we offer. You can have access to our online channel, the free one and the private one. So you have a lot of videos on YouTube that you can actually enjoy. And there you can access to our brand as well, to Mac, that we are our Paddle brand. And basically to any need that you have. We have a quite complete website, to be honest, that we avoid. We try to avoid the customer to contact us for like small issues. Yeah. They have access to all the information. And yes, when they know what they want, here we are, you know, with our doors open to attend anyone who wants some help or assistance or just want to have fun. Excellent. Thank you very much, Danny, for being with us. Yeah, my pleasure and regards to every single one who listens to your amazing program. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode about Paddle with Danny Dios, who's in charge of PaddleTrainer.com. I've been mentioning throughout these months and at the beginning of the year, Paddle is really taken over not only Europe, but also my life. It's a positive thing. And really, I'm enjoying playing paddle and seeing 
how people have applied like business skills to paddle and this fusion of sports and business is really something very interesting for me and so i hope that you also found it interesting and will have some wish at least to try this amazing sport i promise you'll be hooked for sure <laughs> so go ahead and try it and before we end danny has been very kind to offer one free access to his online course so I'm going to be leaving a question in the show notes of this episode. So just go ahead and answer the question and you'll be eligible for this free pass to an online course about Paddle. So go ahead, leave the answer to your question and I'll see you all in the next episode. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Mastermind.fm. If you liked what you heard in today's episode, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your feedback encourages us to keep producing the kind of content that you have come to rely on for your own entrepreneurial journey. And if you have a question or topic you'd like us to cover on the show, send it to us through our website or via email at podcast at mastermind.fm or even connect with us on Twitter at mastermind.fm. We look forward to hearing from you and hope you have a fantastic week.